0: Genesis 3, 23 to 25 says, But before faith came, we were under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So, I mean, that, there's a different, there's a distinction in being in Christ. We still have this, the law is still beneficial, but we're not under simply the law. Uh, Galatians 4, 10, and 11, You observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid for you, lest you have labored in your vain. You've labored in vain. So, I mean, it's keeping the main thing the main thing and keeping Jesus first. Gnosticism was something totally different. Gnosticism was like this New Age mysticism teaching. If you look out, I mean, a lot of the world religions now, the, the minor stuff, have elements of this same type mysticism. It's a, it's a spirituality. They recognize that Jesus was a higher being, but not God. So both of these would attack, both Gnosticism and Judaism would attack the deity of Christ. So it's important, and that's what Paul is really reaching out to these Colossians for, is giving them the tools that they need to be able to defend their faith. So Paul refutes these doctrines by pointing to Christ. We need to use Colossians in the same way Colossians, in the same way today. To highlight his deity, his humanity, his supremacy, and his preeminence. Um, if you look back into Acts chapter 19, Paul spent two years teaching in Ephesus. That's most likely where he met Epaphras, one of the guys that we're going to meet later on in this chapter. Ephesus is about 100 miles west of the city of Colossae. Um, it's close to Laodicea, which we see in the book of Revelation, and also Hierapolis. So it's in that uh, Asia Minor, north and West of Israel, north or west of, of Jerusalem, so the north side of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the big word in this chapter and just this context is preeminence. There's two different um, Greek words for this preeminence. Uh, one is talking about like first in rank, so first in order, first in rank. The other one is like a desire to be first. You see that in like 3 John 1.9, John is talking about this guy, Diophtrophes, who wants to be recognized as first. So he has a desire to be first. That doesn't necessarily make him first. We all kind of have that in our own experience. You want something, but that doesn't make it. so. Um, the theme, again, the centrality of Christ and his relationship to the church. We're finishing up Ephesians. Um, Ephesians focuses on Christians being members of the body of Christ, which Christ is the head. Colossians emphasizes Christ as the head and then the church as this body of you know, we make up that membership so I'm going to go through read uh, chapter 1 we'll pray and then like I said there is there's a lot going on here so so Colossians 1 chapter 1 uh, verse 1 Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. And it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Nice intro. Um, for this reason, verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God." The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. So I woke up this morning, and I had a little pang of anxiety because there's a whole lot here, <laughs> and we have a limited amount of time. Um, I'm just going to pray. We'll, we'll get into it. So, Father God, we thank you so much for this, this new year, for the opportunities that are in it. Um, we know that you have a perfect will for each one of us. We pray that we would uh, just have a renewed desire to... To seek out that will each day, to uh, whether it's our, our devotion time, our time in your word, our time in prayer, our time in fellowship with you and with others. Help us to be an encouragement to others to, uh, I mean, I would encourage each one of us to, the, the commitments that we've made to you in this new year, that we would share those with, uh, with our, our fellow brothers and sisters, that they would help to encourage us to, to stay strong in that, but to put you first in all things pray that you would uh, just be with us in this time. I know that there's a lot to cover. Um, I pray that you would just guard my lips, Lord, and, and let everything that is said be in accordance to your will and align with your word. We thank you so much just for the opportunity we have to gather together. Not everybody in the world can do this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so cha- uh, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul's identifying himself as an apostle. Part of this is he's not been to this city of Colossus. So he he has this desire to tell people some of his testimony. Hey, I'm I'm writing under the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he's an apostle by the will of God. Um, So he introduces himself and he establishes his credentials. Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples. You guys know that he was called after. Paul was a persecutor of the early church. An apostle is one that's sent by God to preach the gospel, somebody that's chosen or appointed or called. We've talked about calling before. I talked, I taught about calling a couple years ago at Unfinished. It was actually the same text, and I talked about walking worthy of the calling that you've received. So Paul is called to be an apostle. Verse 2, to the saints and brethren in Christ who are in Colosse. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we we saw this same kind of salutation or or greeting in the beginning of Ephesians. You guys remember what a saint is? What does it mean to be a saint? It's a faithful brother or sister. It's a holy person, somebody that's been set apart. What does it take to be a saint? To be in Christ is to be a saint. I mean, to, to accept Christ, to acknowledge him gives you sainthood this isn't like this big religious system where you have to do all these works and everything else to become a saint you don't you don't get sainted like you get knight knighted or whatever so he's he's calling these people saints but then there's also this distinction of to the saints and the faithful brethren so what's the difference between those two Again, Paul is writing to combat false teachings. So maybe these faithful brethren are the ones that have not given themselves over to entertaining some of these false teachings. They're in Christ. They're saints. There's also like a, a small group that is sticking with what the Bible says, that's sticking with the, the testimony of Jesus Christ and him crucified and, and the atonement and everything else. So there's these saints and then there's these uh, faithful brethren. Um, talking about saints, 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. I mean, so it's it's this being set apart. It's this uh, sanctification. It's a change in the individual, in your status. So saint equals in Christ. In Christ equals saint. Paul talks about their faith in Christ. We get into verse 3. He said, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Question, what does praying always look like? There's a lot of different verses talking about pray without ceasing, praying always. I mean, and it's this exhortation. I mean, we've got Romans 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, 2 Timothy 1.3, 1 Corinthians 1.4. Ephesians 1, 6, Philippians 1, 3, and 4, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. There's half a dozen verses that are talking about having this continual prayer. I can give those to you again. (laughs) Um, But this is about having an attitude of prayer. If if somebody comes up on your mind, I mean, if you're driving, if you're getting ready to drive, if somebody else is driving, and the Lord puts somebody on your heart, What's, what are you going to do with that? You can lift them up in prayer. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But there's also this continual dialogue. It doesn't matter if you're in school, in in church, in traffic, at work, first thing in the morning when you wake up. Start the day in this attitude of prayer. Thankful that you woke up. Thankful that, I mean, you have family and friends. Thankful that you're in Christ. But having this continual attitude of prayer so Paul says that they're praying always for these people in the city of Colossus verse 4 since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints again Paul heard about these things but he had not witnessed it so the city of Colossus and this church at Colossus had a testimony outside of their area so if Paul's writing this to the church in Clayton other people have heard about the hope which um, the faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints I mean this is this is huge the, because there's lots of different kinds of testimonies to have, you can have a good testimony you can have a, a good um, somebody's got a good picture of who you are and they can tell others about their experience with you, but they have this good testimony so they've heard of your faith and of your love for all the saints. We need to know that um,
1: the love, I mean, we
0: talked in Ephesians about the, the unity and the bond of the unity and what's the outworking of that, and it's love. It's being able to be an encouragement to one another, to, to love one another, to lift one another up. But we need to know that the gospel has the power to produce fruit, fruit. We, we just came off the retreat, the bare fruit, and some of that in what is bearing fruit. I mean, you've got to think about that. So verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So he's talking about their faith, their love, and their hope. He didn't mention their knowledge yet. We're going to get into that in a couple of verses. But he talks about their faith, their hope, and their love. Something to think about with hope. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite verses or group of verses, Romans 5, 3 to 5. And Paul's talking about this in the context of, of suffering and adversity. He said, and not only that, we also glory in tribulations. You don't really take glory and tribulation or adversity, hard things, and, and pair them together. But he says, We know that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So how do you get hope? You go through some tough things. Talking about faith. James chapter 2, 14 to 26. James goes through this very explanation, I mean a huge explanation of talking about faith and then talking about works and how they're not mutually exclusive, but I can't have faith and be in Christ without having some evidence of good works. Our hope, what he's talking about, hope which is laid up for you in heaven. That's God's promise of heaven. It's his promise of giving us a new heart. It's uh, being made a new creation an inheritance I taught from First Peter a couple months ago Peter talks about the, an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away reserved in heaven for you that's what you have in Christ is this inheritance um, we have a promise of eternal life 1 John 5, 5 13. these things I've written that you may know that you have eternal life the new creation we have the new creation bookstore if anyone is in Christ he is what? a new creation. Those are promises that we have and that gives us hope. Hope to where we can go through these tribulations and these hard times. Verse 6, which has come to you as it has also in the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So what does it mean to know the grace of God in truth? This is to have Experiential knowledge of God's goodness, of His restoration, of you—you uh, you find yourself in a position that you never thought that you'd be in, and, and you turn back to Him and you repent and you experience His restoration and His goodness and His forgiveness. You—you you know about His grace. You're going to have opportunities to know about His grace. But it says also, it's bringing forth fruit since the day that you heard. So what is fruit? We went through bearing fruit. We were talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Fruit, I mean, if you boil down what is fruit, and it talks about multiplication of fruit, it talks about who's supposed to be producing fruit, it is good works. But it's not good works first. Good works is the evidence. The the fruit, just like you plant a seed, and it buds into a little sapling and then a big tree and then By the time you're ready to sell your house and move somewhere else, it starts producing fruit. This fruit is the evidence of the seed that was planted years ago. I mean, we we talked about the four soils a couple months, too. And the evidence, I mean, the condition of your heart and then the evidence of the seed that was cast. So, the grace of God in truth. um, Ephesians 2. You guys know this, but for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. So this, I mean, Paul reiterates this so many times. When he's talking about grace and he's talking about works, grace comes first. Grace through faith comes first. But when you experience that grace, you cannot help yourself from doing good works. Go on in the rest of that. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John 15, 16 says, The chosen bear fruit. He says, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So you're chosen by Jesus. And then you're called to go and bear fruit. So, verse 7 and you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Verse 8 who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So, what do we know about Epaphras outside of the book of Colossians? Um, later on in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 12 says that he's one of you. He, Epaphras is identified as being from this church. Uh, Philemon, You guys remember the book of Philemon with Onesimus and the, the slave and Paul making this writing to Philemon to forgive the, the slave that ran away and, and request that he treat him as he would treat Paul and restore him on his behalf. In that, it mentions Epaphras, that he's a fellow prisoner. So as Paul's writing this letter from prison, he's in jail with Epaphras, and Epaphras is telling him, man, you got to come to Coloss. People are loving each other. Fruit is being produced. So Paul is excited. I mean, this is a testimony of the living Word being lived out. and fruit is, is coming. So again, I mentioned from the, the time in Acts, one of Paul's converts from his time in Ephesus returned home and started this home church in Coloss and then it's grown. But then what happens? We're, we're in this world. We're not to be of this world. There's these outside influences, just like when you go home this evening and turn on the TV or you get out tomorrow and go to school. There's these outside influences. There's these false teachings. There's stuff that combat who Jesus is. So Paul is saying, hey, things are going good, but beware. Beware that these other things are out there. So there's a testimony from the this community in Coloss, but there's also this testimony of what's going on in their community. So this is, this is an exhortation for them to be strong and to take a stand. Verse 9, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. There's that praying continually, praying always again. Do not cease. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So what's Paul praying for? He's praying for the knowledge of, for them to have the knowledge of God's will. That's collectively as a body. What does God want to do with this church? You're like this, uh, this outpost in the midst of all this false teaching. But it's also for the individual. He's praying for God's will, for wisdom and for spiritual understanding. So my question to you: Do you know how to pray for somebody that you've never met? What can you take from this? If you hear about I mean there was the, the thing on the news about Coptic Christians being beheaded by ISIS a few years ago. And how do you pray for those people's family and the, the people that they've left behind? For the, the church that's being persecuted all around the world. How do you pray for somebody that you don't know? There's some points. Understanding God's will for them. Same thing that Paul is is praying without ceasing for these Colossians to gain spiritual wisdom, to honor and please God, to produce good fruit. To learn to know God, to be strengthened by God's power, to have endurance and patience, to be filled with joy, and to give thanks always. It doesn't matter who they are, where they are, how much they make, what they, I mean, where they're at in their walk. This is a prayer that you can pray for leadership, military, persecuted church, it doesn't matter. So if you're having this mindset of praying continually and the Lord puts somebody, somebody on your heart, and you're like, I don't know what to pray for them. Pick a couple of those. Lord, reveal your will to that person. Strengthen them in whatever it is they're going through. Something that we can all apply. Um, a word about wisdom. So he's talking about knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. Those three are huge. I mean, if you guys have read the book of Proverbs, it's all about some wisdom, some knowledge, and some understanding. Um, wisdom is the practical outworking of knowledge this knowledge that we have cannot be separated from the understanding that we get by having Christ in us, by having his Holy Spirit. So there's a spiritual maturity and a discernment. You can't let knowledge, knowledge that you have in the world be offset by what has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, what you see in scripture and what you see in truth. Um, and what do you do with knowledge? Wisdom James 3, and I mean, James has got, James is deep. Um, It's just a a great book, but he talks about wisdom, and he says wisdom, and he kind of contrasts, he's talking about wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Wisdom from above is being gentle, being willing to yield, to have mercy, and to not have any hypocrisy or partiality. So when you're right, can you share that wisdom with somebody without, I mean, whacking them over the head with it? The other, the other part of it is if you're trying to share wisdom and you're boasting or you have, uh, you know, ulterior motives, if you're envious, if you're just trying to prove a point or win an argument and you're boasting in this wisdom, it needs to be that gentle and the, the type that will be able to restore somebody. So, verse 10 that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing, with, increasing in the knowledge of God. So, walk worthy. This w- I mean, for unfinished a couple of years ago, these were the two words that stuck out to me. And, and just this was what I wanted to pull the text on and being unfinished and to walk worthy because it, it takes that you have been set apart, you're a saint, and there's an expectation. That you should walk worthy of the Lord. And this is living consistently with the full implications of your individual relationship with Christ according to the knowledge that you've received. This is about knowing better and then doing those things. I mean, this is about what do you get up, the decision, when you get up, the decisions that you make. Are you going to choose yourself? Or are you going to choose God's will? We each have this opportunity every single day, multiple times throughout every day. But this is about knowing better, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. How do we do that? Uh, verse 11: strengthen with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. As believers, we are not strengthened or empowered in proportion to our individual needs. It's not, I'm completely overwhelmed, God. I need you to help me get puffed up so I can make it through this. It's according to his glorious power. The abundance of God's power is how we receive strength. It's more than you will ever need. I mean, this is... It's not just going to be based on your circumstances. God's power is not based on your circumstances. His ability to work in you. But then, what is this for? We're strengthened, <laughs> in the last part of that verse, for all patience and long suffering with joy. Some of this stuff doesn't make any sense. I don't want to have long suffering. I'm not real wild about patience. How am I supposed to do both of those with joy? You're not going to do those in your own strength. That's the abundance of God's power that allow you to go through difficult times. I mean, loss of a loved one. uh, I mean, parents separating, divorcing, betrayal by friend, whatever it is. How do you navigate those circumstances that are completely overwhelming? Be patient, long-suffering, persevere with joy. It's only by his strength. Verse 12: Given thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What does qualified mean? Think about it. I mean, what is, if, if you qualify for something, think of it from a, a sports perspective, think of it from a college application perspective, whatever it is. Qualified means to be able or authorized to perform a task. I mean, there's a, there's a gatekeeper. If you're not qualified, you don't, get, you don't even get the opportunity to perform if you're not qualified. In this context, we do not have to prove ourselves to be qualified. We receive it as a part of our inheritance as saints. That's pretty awesome. So he's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us... Into the kingdom of his son, of his, of the son of his love. So a couple words here, delivered and conveyed. And this is in the context of what happens to me when I am in Christ. What am I being delivered from? What am I being conveyed into? To be delivered is to be set free. To be conveyed is to be assisted to a new place, almost like relocated. Um... Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You have a new residence. Act like it. You've you've moved. Quit going back to your old address. 1 John 1, 5-7 This is a message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that being delivered is being delivered from the power of sin. That being conveyed is being conveyed into his kingdom. There's a lot of stuff going on in this chapter. It's not only looking at who Jesus is in relation to the church, but it's also your position in him. Who are you in Christ? So, verse fourteen: In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This word, redemption. What do you think of when you when you hear redemption or to redeem? A long time ago, glass bottles. I don't know if they do this anymore. Not probably not. But they used to have. Uh, you would buy a bottle of Coke or Pepsi. And you would be able to take that glass bottle back to the store that you bought it from, give it back to them, and they would give you two or three cents, a nickel. I mean, this is before you would pay $3.50 for a 12-ounce drink. But there there would be a redemption value to give that glass bottle back to the person that you bought it from. Redemption in this context is the payment of the price or the ransom for the release of a slave. As believers, we are freed from the bondage to sin by the forgiveness of sin. I'll say that again. As believers, we're freed. What we've been redeemed and in this forgiveness, we're freed from the bondage of sin, the bondage to sin by the forgiveness of sin. So verse 15, this is where it starts, I mean, making much of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So image, this can mean a couple things. It can mean the likeness, like an image on a coin, like you got a quarter and it's got George Washington's image on that coin, or reflection in a mirror. The mirror is not the person. It's a reflection of the person. It's a likeness. Or a manifestation with the sense that God is fully revealed in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. God had, I mean, the... The, the Trinity, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is manifested in Jesus Christ. So when you read Genesis and you read about the creation, what Colossians chapter 1 says about Genesis chapter 1 was that was Jesus. As we read the rest of this chapter, get a picture of that in your mind of where was Jesus at in Genesis chapter 1? And he, he had his sleeves rolled up and he was all in the middle of it. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we've got this firstborn over all creation. Um, the Greek word for this is protokos. Um, it can describe either a priority in time or a supremacy in rank. I, I mentioned supremacy when I was given kind of the overview. As Paul used it here, he probably had both in mind because he's saying that he's the firstborn over all creation. He was there before. So from a timeline perspective, he was there before all of creation. But it's also this supremacy. Jesus being before all created things, and then he is of a supremely different order than everything that is created. So he's got this supremacy, and he was before. So he is the image of God. I mean, we just went through Christmas. The Word became flesh. The, the, I mean, there's, there's so many elements of that, but when Christ came, he was manifested as the image of God. Verse 16, "...for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers." All things were created through him and for him. What does all mean? Somebody. Just go ahead and say it. I mean, all means all. All things were created. This verse, Colossians 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 16, establishes Jesus Christ's superiority over all creation. Everything that works is because of Jesus. I mean, this is, we're, we're talking about the finite to the, the micro to the macro. As big as you can think, and the way that it was designed, and the reason that it works is because of Jesus Christ and his handiwork in it. The earth's rotation on an axis. Our solar system. I mean, the earth's rotation around the sun. The seasons that we have the tides at the ocean only coming up to a certain point, quantum physics, evaporation, the central nervous, nervous system, the human eye, everything that you guys study in science, it works because of Jesus. That is amazing. I mean, take, a, take just a minute and wrap your head around that. I mean, the, the giftings that he's given doctors in medical sciences and engineers and the way things work and the the laws that we have. I mean, the laws were designed to work far before anybody took a pen and paper and wrote them down. The law of gravity. I mean, Ohm's law and, and electricity and how electrons flow. All those things were laid out before the foundation of the world and made to operate and be cohesive because of the plan and purpose that Jesus Christ had for them. That rocks. I mean, that is so cool. So you can be sitting in a science class and say, wow, that's my Jesus right there. He created it for his purpose. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So back to Colossians. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The idea that Jesus is both the unifying principle and the personal sustainer of all creation. If it wasn't for him, again, I mean, we live in a very delicate balance. You guys hear about, you know, global warming and everything. There's bigger things to worry about. If we're not spinning on the axis the way that we were designed to, we don't even have seasons anymore. I mean, we just, the the rotation is... Designated at a certain angle and if we don't have that then the seasons that we've become accustomed to I mean there's a whole bunch of weird sci-fi movies that, that can talk about what ifs but it is the way that it is because that's the way that it was designed to be verse 18 he's the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence there's that word again And this preeminence is first in rank, that he may be the absolute number one, not only in your heart and over your life, but in all of creation. The firstborn from the dead refers to his resurrection. I'm not going to get into a bunch of details there, but this is him coming back, and he's also got preeminence in, in what happened on the cross and what happened in the tomb and what happened after the tomb. He's got that preeminence. So in that, take just a moment. What do you think about Jesus and his preeminence, his role in creation? You've heard some of these verses before. Genesis 1, Jesus. John 1, Jesus. Colossians 1, Jesus. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All the way across the board. And Paul's writing this stuff because there was people saying, no. He was a good teacher. He said some nice things, but he wasn't God. People are saying the same thing today. People that you go to school with, your family, I mean, the holidays are always a great time to get around aunts and uncles and cousins that don't have any, I mean, it's a great opportunity to to be a testimony and to, to live out your faith and to walk worthy and to let your relatives see something different about you. But it's also a time that you may get challenged by your your aunt that is on the outs with your dad because your dad got saved 15 years ago and has, has led a different life and your aunt's convicted. I don't know. I mean, whatever the relationship, whatever else is, your faith will be challenged. I don't care if it's by your family, by your friends, by your teachers, by your boss. That's why Paul's writing this, that they would be strengthened and that they would know how to defend their faith. So he gives them this context of who Jesus is. And we've talked about a counterfeit before, right? So this this false teaching is a counterfeit. They're, They're trying to turn somebody away. And the best way to recognize a counterfeit is not to study all the different types of counterfeits. The people that work at the Treasury Department that are in charge of identifying counterfeit bills are intimately familiar with every jot and tittle and mark and tone and the the crispness of the paper and everything they know what the authentic $20 bill, $50 bill looks like. They've spent their entire career knowing that so when somebody has a cheap knockoff and tries to pass it off to a $20 bill inspector, it doesn't matter what what the technique is or whatever, it's not authentic so they recognize it as a counterfeit Moving on, uh, verse 19 Talking about being reconciled in Christ For it pleased the Father that in Him In Jesus Christ All the fullness should dwell And this is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily When we look at Christ in Isaiah 53 You guys know Isaiah 53 It talks about uh, I mean it talks about the Passover It talks about the things that Jesus would endure To become The atonement for our sins In Isaiah 53, it says that it pleased the Father to bruise him. In Colossians 1, it says it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. I mean, it's this completion. Verse 20, And by him to reconcile all things, again, there's a lot of all in this chapter, uh, all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The offer of reconciliation is available to all. So this verse says reconcile all things. There's a lot of false teachings that will take this verse out of context and say everybody's going to heaven. Doesn't matter what you do. Jesus, if if this is if this is what it says it says, then he'll reconcile all things. You can't take one one verse and undo what the rest of the Bible says. I mean, this is this is things that we need to learn to apply. Um, this is not condoning universalism it's not condoning the message that everybody's going to get a second chance everybody's going to go to heaven everybody's going to be okay in the end Um, the blood of the cross what this the the end of verse 20 says the blood of the cross speaks to us of the real physical death of Jesus Christ in our place on our behalf before God the literal death the literal judgment that he bore is what saves us that's the, that's the distinction. I mean that's the work that was done on the cross for us. That's what this reconciliation is talking about. It's available to all things. I mean his, his restoration, the, the fall had an impact on creation as a whole. The, the work of the ground, the, the way that the, the things work was perverted from the original design. Christ can restore all of that, but he can also restore the individual. But it's going to be contingent on that individual. Walking, I mean, accepting Christ, walking worthy in that. So 21, you who were once, once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. So what is alienated in your mind and what does reconciled mean? Alienated is literally transferred to another owner. Um, it's a transfer of ownership from God to Satan and self. Um, this affected us both in our mind and in our behavior. This is a part of the fall. This is that sin nature that we were born with. Titus 1, I mean, here's just a distinction talking about being, being alienated uh, in your mind and wicked works. Titus 1, 14 and 16, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but even their mind and conscience are defiled they profess to know God but in works they deny him being abominable disobedient and disqualified for every good work that's what it means that's what it looks like to be alienated in your mind Um, you can look at this uh, two different ways of understanding the human's need and God's salvation we can see God as the judge and we're guilty before him Therefore, we need forgiveness and justification. We can see God as our friend and recognize that we have damaged that relationship with Him. Therefore, we need reconciliation. So we need forgiveness and justification. We also need reconciliation. Both of these are true, and neither one should be promoted at the expense of another. There's, a, there's a, an intersection where you begin a relationship with Christ, but then there's also opportunities for restoration when you mess up when you go to a point that you weren't willing to go to. So how are we reconciled? Verse 22 In the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. This is again the significance of Christ's work on the cross. The phrase the body of His flesh combated the false teachings of Gnosticism. I told you that it was like this spirituality and they denied the deity of Christ. Um, the Gnostics would teach that redemption could only be accomplished through a purely spiritual being Paul reinforces both Jesus' deity and his humanity in so many of his teachings and and in that you've got to recognize that for yourself too of who Jesus was was he the son of God? yes was he the son of man? yes And, and in that what did his what was the weight of his life and his sacrifice and what does that mean for you? This also, um, so 23, "If, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, what does it look like to continue in the faith? This is talking about perseverance through the reconciliation. Look back at verse 21 and verse 22. I mean, it's talking about you were alienated, you were reconciled, And then uh, through his death, presents you holy and blameless and above reproach. But then you continue in the faith. It's important for Christians to continue in godly conduct. We're not saved by our godly conduct. That, again, goes back to James and talking about, uh, you know, being saved and the distinction between faith and good works. We're not saved by our godly conduct, but it is important for us to continue in the truth of the gospel because we're saved by grace through faith. So, verse 24, uh, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. There's a lot there, just in that one verse, and it, it's not meant to be confusing, but it can be a little bit confusing. But again, we've got this context of suffering. I talked about that from Romans chapter 5 and how suffering and trials and tribulations can produce character, can produce hope. Paul's making the point when he says, uh, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That's not saying in any stretch of the imagination that what Christ endured while he was in bodily form on this earth was not sufficient. What Paul's kind of saying here, he's making the point that the believer will endure the same type of sufferings that Christ would be enduring if he were still in the world. So if, if Jesus was here, he would be persecuted the same way that he was when he was here before. So again, it's, it's confusing, but don't read too much into it. Um, It's just saying that there's always going to be this adversity. In being in the world, there's going to be this adversity against the things of the Father. John 15, 19, and 20. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Uh, 2 Timothy three twelve. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you have a desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will, by all means, suffer persecution. So how do you rejoice in suffering? What he says in, in the beginning of 24. Um, you got to look back to that promise to that uh, what he what he started talking about when he was talking about their faith and their hope and their love and then we had this the hope of the promise of heaven the, the hope that's built into going through hard things 2 Corinthians 4:16 and 17 therefore we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The things that you're going through today may seem like the end of the world. But you hold that up against the promises that you have in eternity with God and these things It have to pale. If you choose to focus on these things, I mean, Philippians 4, 8 talks about if you focus on these things, you'll stay focused on these things, but it tells you these other things to focus on. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And 26 is one of my all-time favorite verses. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to His saints, 26 and 27. Hidden from the ages reminds us that there are aspects of God's plan that were not clearly revealed in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament has a lot of foundation. It's got a lot of history and context, and it pulls a lot of things together. You read in Leviticus and Exodus, and you see how the tabernacle was set up, and you see the the application and, and how things begin to work together in a spiritual sense. You see Leviticus and the law and the sacrifice and the things, but it's a picture of Jesus Christ. Those were things that were a mystery and that were hidden in the Old Testament. So a mystery has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Who's a saint? Verse 27. This was my favorite one. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, in you, in you, in you, in you, the hope of glory so what do you do with this what effects should these verses have on us what's this mystery that Paul is describing the mystery is that Jesus Christ now lives within the Gentile believers and has undone the effects of the separation from the fall and has power over death has power over sin and gives us the hope of glory that's this mystery that's been revealed that Christ is in you that, I mean, Paul says somewhere else that the, the same power that worked in, in his resurrection is the power that works in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul's, Paul's whole point in this chapter, in this book, is to teach people and warn people in all wisdom to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, to teach a reliance and a dependence on Jesus Christ, not on the writer of this letter, not on anybody that's teaching from this book, but a reliance on Jesus Christ and to know who he is, to find out what he's done on your behalf. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Colossians chapter 1, I hope that you never read the story of creation the same way again. That you would know. I mean, you you now have, have some knowledge. Let it turn into wisdom. Let it turn into discernment. Let it turn into maturity. But when you hear Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and the six days of creation and then God rested, see Jesus in that. See his preeminence in that. See his sovereignty in that but also see him in the Gospels and see him going to the woman at the well and being willing to restore people and heal people. I love the verses where it says, and he healed everybody. everybody I mean, people were standing in line, coming for food and everything else, but he just uh, he was everything. So he is this master of creation, but he's also this sustainer. He has the preeminence. He has everything that you